0: I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Will Republicans retake the Senate in 2014? What will happen in the House? What's the latest in 2016 presidential politics? People who want to stay ahead of the curve in politics turn to our good friends at the Cook Political Report for answers. For more than 30 years, Charlie Cook and his team have nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer calls the report, quote, the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver says few have, quote, a longer track record of success. If you make it your business to know politics, you need to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Head over to cookpolitical.com slash politicalwire. That's cookpolitical.com slash politicalwire to sign up today. And now to our conversation. Every topic has its own slang, its own lingua franca. From football's NFL stadiums to academia's ivory towers to California's beaches, every niche these days maintains a coded language of its own. To really understand these niches, to be clear on what's behind the headlines, what people are really saying, what's really going on, you need to speak the language. And if you don't speak the language, you better have the right dictionary. Politics, of course, is no difference. Here, deep regret is something you express only when you feel no remorse at all. Bomb throwers are celebrated, but bridge builders are sellouts. And the last thing you want to be is someone's, quote, good friend. To help us navigate the double-speak and double-dealing that define the language of politics, Chuck McCutcheon and David Mark. McCutcheon is co-author of National Journal's Almanac of American Politics and co-editor of CQ Politics in America 2010. Mark is editor-in-chief of Politics with an Axe and former senior editor at Politico. Together, they are co-authors of the book Dog Whistles, Walkbacks, and Washington Handshakes, Decoding the Jargon, Slang, and Bluster, of American political speech. Chuck and David, thanks for joining me. Chuck, uh, I'll start with you. Would you dare uh, refer to David as your quote, good friend?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's acceptable outside of political context. Uh, If we were both on the House floor together, it might be different though. Uh
0: so, so even after even after writing a book together, uh, you know he's he's your out of the political world good friend. He's not a a quote political good friend.
1: Exactly. Yes, there's there's a definite distinction that has to be drawn there.
0: <laughs> yeah. do, do do we want to know, Chuck, what um, politicians are really saying? I mean, on some level, you know, you got to wonder. Maybe we're just better off uh, being as in the dark as as they seem to be.
1: Well, we try to make the case that um, it's not the only thing, but the obfuscation uh, and, and the and the euphemisms that they employ um, is just one of the things that is driving all this contempt that the public has for politicians. And so, we thought it'd be kind of a useful, hopeful, hopefully handy exercise. In trying to explain exactly, you know, anybody who happens to turn on C-SPAN or anybody who happens to read the newspaper and, you know, hears some of these phrases tossed about, um, you know, and, and putting them in context, what they actually mean.
0: You know, it's funny that you say that because, you know, David, turning to you, that was one of the areas that I wanted to explore. I mean, we all know the statistics, The politics and politicians could hardly rate lower with Americans, Congress, the president, it doesn't matter. People are disgusted with all of it. And and lots of reasons are given to explain it, the partisanship, the lack of real progress, et cetera. But as I was reading your book and as I was thinking about, you know, some of the the commentary that you've added and and some of the ideas. Around it. I mean, I too got to wonder what about language? I mean, what role do words play? And we'll get to some of the fun stuff that that you guys write about too. But but, but what role, on on a kind of a serious note, what role do words play in all this? The fact that many of us don't understand what the heck they're saying.
2: Yeah, I I think there's a lot of truth to that. The murky language that's used by elected officials, the kind of intentional clouding of what they really mean, I think, as Chuck suggests, really turns off voters. And I think a lot of... Voters, residents, citizens, et cetera, would actually be open to more blunt talk, more answers like, I don't know, or I'm going to have to study this or something of that nature. And I, in a way, I think it's a real shame because many of elected officials actually were quite successful in their previous careers, whether they were lawyers, prosecutors, trial lawyers, one Republican member of Congress from Minnesota. It was a former Marine Corps officer who actually carried the nuclear football for presidents. And these are kind of jobs with serious, sober responsibilities. And I think these people would actually have some interesting approaches to issues, but they feel such pressure to be partisan and not step out of line that we don't get to hear what they could really bring to the debate.
0: And again, I don't know if it's just because you know I was thinking about this interview and this conversation and and prepping for it, but you know I I thought of you guys as well as I was reading about you know we're recording this before President Obama has given his uh, speech to the nation uh, about you know why we're getting involved, we're going to get more deeply involved um, with with ISIS, and and there was a um, a piece around how some of his old language is coming back to haunt him, especially where he seemed to refer to ISIS. Um, as the JV team. And, and David, there's a, a quote in the New York Times piece on this. That, that says, I don't think it's just loose talk. I think it's actually revealing talk. And this is uh, um, Peter Werner, who's a former advisor to uh, President George Bush. And and so, you know, maybe there's some partisanship involved in, in even his statement. But holding that aside for, you know, the, the quote goes on, sometimes words are mistakes, they're just poorly put. But sometimes they're a manifestation of one's deep belief in the world, and that's what you really get with President Obama. So I'm not necessarily looking to pick on... Obama in particular on this. He's probably uh, just as guilty and just as not guilty as as any other politician. But it really struck, I mean, as in items as serious as, you know, our military re-involvement, deep re-involvement in this region, um, language matters in all of this, whether it's politics, whether it's campaigning or, or foreign policy. Um, David, do, do I have that right? Was I right to think about you guys when I read that quote? <laughs>
2: Yeah, unfortunately, yes, for this very serious and somber topic. And I doubt that JV team remark is a particularly unfortunate turn of phrase because there's that old saying, to use a cliché, don't taunt your enemies, and you don't want to essentially wave the red flag at them like a raging bull coming at you, to use another cliché. So I was surprised to hear the president say something like that because he's usually so careful and you can pick, as you say, you can pick this out with any president, any elected official, where they make one misquote or here or there. But in this case, it, the problem with Obama, particularly in ISIS Iraq, is he just doesn't want to send troops abroad for various reasons. Maybe that's a good approach to foreign policy. Maybe it's not. But it's kind of hard to spin, particularly as the anniversary of nine eleven approaches.
0: Yeah. So Chuck, why don't we, you know, jump into the book and, and some of the words so we can really give some context to any listeners who, you know, haven't read it. And I, I gave some examples, of course, in the intro, but what, what are some of the phrases or words that really stand out to you? What are some of your favorites? What are, you know, ones that you think just get to the real core of political doublespeak that, uh, that folks should really know about and the type of thing that they'll see and, and learn about in your book?
1: Oh well, uh, that's a long list well we we divided our book into chapters um we We started the first chapter uh with personality types. We talked about you know appeasers and attack dogs and bridge builders and bedwetters and folks like that um and then in the next chapter, you know we got into some of the um we got into some of the the expressions that you hear a lot in politics um with Obama. Um, you know, it's let me be clear, um, which we call, you know, the spiritual heir to Richard Nixon's, um, let me make one thing perfectly clear. Um, and then we, we get into, um, kind of, um, places and things. Um, there's the Overton window, which was new to a lot of people. But it's, it's this term uh, that basically uh, attempts to frame the range of acceptable discourse. And so if you make a really controversial statement, you're known as going outside the Overton window. Um, and then in the next chapter, we talk about the legislative process. But we didn't get into parliamentary terms like filibuster and unanimous consent. You know, we, we tried to talk about you know, a marker. Uh, and and some of the other um, different types of things that you hear um, on the floor uh, of the House and the Senate and and city council meetings and chambers like that. And then uh, I think we talked about campaigns and elections, and we talked about, you know, phrases that you hear on the campaign trail, like, this is the most important election of our lifetime, or um, the only poll that matters is the one on Election Day, which is the stock phrase that anybody who is um, trailing big in the polls and doesn't have a prayer will say. And then in the last chapter, we looked at the media uh, and scandals, um, you know, and the media is, is just as guilty, I think, of, of obscure, obvious history, language, and cliches as um, as, as politicians are. Uh, I mean, we journalists, we trot out the phrase kabuki theater all the time, you know, for example, to talk about the ritualistic of of politicians. And um, we, we cite an a essay in Slate that said it really doesn't mean what people think it does. I mean, the, the, the actual Japanese kabuki theater um, really is not empty or monotonous, even though it does use a lot of stylized expressions. Yeah, so that's I, just a few.
0: Yeah, yeah, thank you. I, I thought it was excellent how you guys um, divided that, because yeah, some of the, you know, political language that's that's problematic, that slows things down, that confuses things are are cliches and doublespeak, but some of it is, and, and for, just for me personally, I find it, it's what kind of annoys me the most, is the crutch language it's the you know, let me be perfectly clear you know or it's these <laughs> these phrases that are you know that have the appearance of being thoughtful that get used multiple times over and over again and that are are really you know obviously just an opportunity for the politician to you know take them mo- to think almost on on his or her feet and is it just that there's you know david on on, on that front is it just that there's So much coming at these folks, the, the, the stakes are so high around any single misspeak. Is it, is it that, is it, is it caution? Is it is it an abundance of carefulness? Is it a lack of originality? Is it that maybe some of these folks were really good in their previous jobs, but they just might not be that smart? And so coming up with an original thought and original language is too challenging? Is it that they, you know, there are code words and they want to be able to speak to the audiences they want to speak to? I mean, all sorts of reasons behind it. How do you kind of ferret it out. What the reasons are for for this type of language?
2: Actually, I think there's a lot of truth in all of that. But here's one area where I actually would cut some slack to candidates and elect- elected officials in this Twitter, internet age, et cetera, where everything any elected official says can get parsed and dissected within moment, they probably do want to be more careful to what they say. And this is an area where I think the media could maybe, I don't want to say lighten up, but could be put things in more context and not jump on every last thing. Again, easier said than done. You make a good point about some of these folks. I, how can I put it, maybe aren't the best and brightest in the country that get elected to Congress without necessarily naming the test this too. Once you cover Congress for a while, you realize there are some really bright folks up there, but there's also some who put on a suit, knew how to give a good speech and just kind of stay in a safe seat Repeatedly, and they really don't want to mess it up. And some of it, too, I think is instruction they get from their own party leadership where they say, anytime you're asked a question, just give this response. And they literally have talking points within party conference meetings, caucus meetings, where they say, go out to the press and say this. Anytime you're asked about this question, give that answer. And there's nothing particularly new or original about saying that, but I just think in this media, this amped up media age in which we're existing, it's just gotten a lot worse in recent years.
0: Is this just a U.S. phenomenon, David? Do you see this in other cultures? Have you, you know, studied or looked at, uh, um, you know, the political cultures in, in other countries? I mean, do they have the uh, same, same types of issues around language or, or is this really um, unique to the U.S. political situation?
2: It's interesting. Some of the terms in our book, particularly on the legislative side, have British origins. We discuss "my good friend," and that's a lineal descendant of the Right Honorable Gentleman, which has a similar disingenuous meaning in British Parliament. If you ever turn on C-SPAN and see Prime Minister's Questions, you get a similar type of dynamic. But having spoken abroad about politics in about ten different countries and studied it, gone on fellowships, and spent a fair amount of time abroad talking to political officials, I don't think it's anything like what we have in America. Generally, trends in other Western democracies, political trends, that is, take about 10 to 15 years to filter over, that's say, in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, etc., and my experience there is politicians are at least somewhat more candid, not that they don't have their own agendas and interests, but they're just, they seem more like real people. Maybe it's because they don't feel like they're talking to local press and they're worried about getting quoted, but they just seem a lot more genuine to generalize here.
0: Chuck, to pick up on, on one point that David was making just a moment ago, you, you know, at it, it one time, I think in our history, the, the colorful, even deceptive political language, I on some level, I think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, was considered cute. You know, they were rascals, those crazy politicians. Um, and, and is that still the sense around the use? I mean, I don't think it is actually the sense around the use or the misuse of language. And on some level, do you feel, you know, have we jumped the shark on rascal and reached the point where, you know, this this language and the confusion is, you know, in, in some cases, just downright bad behavior? Or, or is that too harsh of a... The judgment?
1: Well, I think you could certainly make the argument that um, there's an overuse of cliches. And, um, you know, back then, maybe there, that things weren't quite as tired of cliche. Um, but, you know, uh, there's only so many times you can hear a politician say, uh, you know, when they're campaigning as an outsider, for example, you know, we should run government like a business, I um, hate that not, one. That you know, just drives that, me that, crazy. You know, governments and businesses run completely different ways. Totally. You know, or the example we use in the book: the, the adverb "frankly." Um, you know, we we um, we point to a number of politicians who who overuse "frankly," um, including Newt Gingrich, uh, who uh, we quote Paul Poundstone, the comedian. As saying, well, I wonder what he's being when he's not being frank. Yeah, and and I think you know voters can only hear those types of things so many times before they just kind of um, you know get maybe disenchanted or disgusted.
0: Listen, that that's how I feel every day when someone says to me, you know, to be honest. Um, or, you know, or in all honesty, I, I, you know, I absolutely always think it. And sometimes, you know, when I'm, you know, feeling a bit aggressive, I'll actually say it. I'll say, well, you know, are are you just now becoming honest? Were you, you know, were were you not honest? You know. (laughs) And, and as you would expect, my wife really appreciates when I say that to her. (laughs) Uh, Chuck. Um, no do, doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I, no,
2: another cousin of that is in, in, in all candor, which yeah. is one that we hear a lot from politicians as yeah. well.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, good. At least you've now given me the heads up that, that of when you've become, you know, when you're using candor with me, and I'll dismiss everything you said <laughs> um, previously. Um, but but uh um you know chuck in in all truthfulness because i <laughs> haven't been truthful do would you characterize and, and i know i was just talking to david and and, and you know so Ch- chuck um on, on this point um do you guys view the book as you know more as a dictionary is it a handbook, is this for reference or, or on some level is is this like a guide for someone going into the jungle, read this carefully before setting foot in the land of the animals?
1: <laughs> well hopefully it can be all of those things to, to to different people. Uh and and this is as good a time as any to mention that um we we don't see this at all as being the last word on political language. I mean it changes all the time. We're adding new phrases. On our website, um, an example was when Eric Cantor um, lost his primary. Uh, a new word entered the language for someone who completely bungled uh, their election, and that was "cantered." <laughs> so we're we're collecting new phrases and suggestions from people in the hopes that um, if we do another edition of the book, um, you know, we can we can keep this as current and up to date as possible. And so, um, we encourage anybody who's listening is if you've got good suggestions to go to our website, which is, um, www.dogwhistlebook, all one word, .com, and, uh, and, and make suggestions. And, uh, we've already gotten a couple and, uh, we, we just think that that would be really useful, um, to try to keep this thing as fresh as possible
0: and and david on, on that point do you, do you guys see this i mean you, um, you know chuck's point that that you know words are always changing and and this is an an evolution i mean you know once upon a time for those of us you know old enough to to recall um this was william sapphire's domain and and he had a political dictionary um, you know, that contained the current words. But, but, you know, h- how is your approach different from, you know, what, what Sapphire did previously? Besides, of course, the fact that, you know, words have evolved and phrases have changed and, and, you know, it's a different political time. But in terms of, of your approach, different than, than how Sapphire did it? Or do you kind of tip your cap to, uh, to that approach and you're just looking to kind of modernize what, what he, you know, did back then?
2: we have the highest respect for the sapphire political dictionary and we quoted several times it's in a bunch of the footnotes and citations, but we weren't really looking just to do an updated version. We wanted to bring our own experience, expertise, and observations to this. Uh, Chuck and I were both congressional reporters on uh, Capitol Hill, obviously, for for many years, and we've had different roles in political journalism. And we've heard these phrases firsthand in interviews over the years. So I think we really had a unique take there. We also... Wanted to avoid some of the old, older terms that don't get used as much that uh, that are more like a dictionary, like bull weevil, which refers to the old conservative Democrats of the early 1980s, and some other
0: terms yeah, like hanging,
1: Hanging chads from the 2000 election, you know, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, right. yeah and and Tegan would probably slug all of us if we didn't uh, also know I know you guys were were incredibly gracious and and mentioned him as well in your introduction but uh you know he he's put a lot of time as well into uh, collecting you know words on a political day di- in political dictionary um, and and you political junkies all kind of hang together on on that front he would uh you know probably turn us all into hanging Chads if we didn't at least you know <laughs> acknowledge which I know you you did as well well, you know, there are a lot of you who – not a lot of you, but but there are a couple of you who really have, you know, unbelievably keen interest in the language of politics, isn't there?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's a testament to Tegan's. Hey knowledge of the subject that he had. We had a lot of the same phrases, and we, we we want to make sure that we didn't overlap. And as you say, we did want to acknowledge his good work on this. And as Chuck said, though, there's plenty of room on this. There's plenty to go around, and there are always, to reiterate, more new phrases that are emerging. So it's not like this is a static subject matter.
0: No. And, and Chuck, just to close this out, you know, your book – opens with a foreword from Jeff Greenfield and, and that's just perfect, right? Because few are better masters of language and knowledge of politics than, than, than Jeff. Um, and he sets up a terrific example, um, of the problem with unclear language. I mean, he points out, and, and this quote was great, that the most memorable words spoken by political leaders shun the rarefied language for simple, clear words that lodge in our memory. And he quotes, um, you know, government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not, shall not perish from the earth. And the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Ask not what your country can do for you. And, and lastly, of course, the highly memorable uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Why, Chuck, is this so hard for politicians to understand, or is it just hard for them to do?
1: Well, we actually uh, asked uh, a couple of uh, experts uh, on political language that very question. One of them, I think, Wayne Fields, uh, who uh, studies political rhetoric, uh, professor at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, kind of made the observation that um, you really don't, to be a successful politician, have to speak in such broad, inclusive terms like those politicians did. Um you can appeal to hybrid constituencies and um and, and so you can you can narrow uh what your language is. I mean that's that's essentially what a dog whistle is. It's 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 narrowing your language to appeal to a very tailored and specific constituency. And and so um, you know, he he made the case that, you know, it it's just how um how how polarized and balkanized our politics has become that Um, You know, those days of of simple, clear, sweeping rhetoric, um, you know, are are, are kind of over.
0: Chuck McCutcheon is co-author of National Journal's Almanac of American Politics and co-editor of CQ Politics in America 2010. David Mark is editor-in-chief of Politics with an X and former senior editor at Politico together. Uh, they are the co-authors of Dog Whistles, Walkbacks, and Washington Handshakes, decoding the jargon, slang, and bluster of American political speech. Uh, you can l- see more, learn more, and provide your own examples of political words at their site, Dog Whistle Book. Uh, Chuck, David, thank you uh, both for your time, and I'll make sure to pay attention if you, either one of you ever refers to me as a good friend. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll know there's a knife going right in my back. I, I appreciate you both uh, taking the time with me today.
2: Well, thank you. thank
0: you very much. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.